and welcome to the Temple of Blair, episode K. This is Andrew Field of APF Records. Andrew is the owner and operator of APF Records based in Salford in Manchester. Um, without trying to put too much of a thumb on exactly what APF profess as, they kind of deal with all kinds of bands ranging from Stoner, Doom, sludgy stuff there's some thrash stuff in there some grindcore stuff in there they're an independent record label and they're absolutely worth your time if you're into the more heavy extreme music based in the uk these days just to rattle off a few names here uh, some of apf's bands include the brothers keg the grand mal tides of sulfur pissed Gandalf the Green, Bong Cauldron, and many, many more. The next upcoming release is from Corrupt Moral Altar. Uh, that's a new EP coming out in the next couple of weeks, I believe November the 27th. The label's currently enjoying some successes from the most recent releases. I think the most recent is Unders new EP, Training Materials number 5, and on Halloween, Possessor released their new album, Damn the Light. So in this chat, myself and Andrew talk about uh, some of the nuances of running an independent record label, especially these days. Andy is not one of these industry veterans who lived through the analog days and tried to endure the streaming revolution. He came to it three, four years ago. No, it's 2017, so he came into it three years ago. So he already knew what he was up against when he put his feet on the ground. Anyway, we had a great chat and hopefully you'll enjoy it. One, two, fuck shit up. giving me your, your, your time Andrew so how are you today are you all right <laughs> yeah uh, pretty well considering strange times isn't it yeah but I'm, I'm enjoying it I say I'm enjoying it I'm enjoying the um the isolation as, as we were just just talking about I've just been cracking on and doing research and speaking to the United States about Roadrunner and stuff like that so that's been my evenings have been occupied with that. Although it started out with video games. I played a lot of video games and then I was like, I need to fucking do something, <laughs> do something else. Excellent. Um, but the way we've, um, we've crossed paths is, is through um, our mutual contact, Simon. Yes. Um, so it's really interesting because I was somewhat aware of APF as a local label, but my relationship with Stoner Metal was very much rooted in New Orleans. It was like Corrosion Conformity, Crowbar, Down, a bit of Floodgates, a bit of Alabama Thunderpuss. It was all stuff like that. And I'd heard a few British stoner bands like Green Lung, um, if you want to say Orange Goblin and things like that. But when I contacted you and I said, I'm going to put a mixtape together, it kind of threw my perceptions a little bit in a really positive way because I didn't know where I could direct my love for stoner metal. But now I feel like I've got a place. <laughs> was, was that the idea of the brand at the start? Was that the, the, the was that the, the game plan to find to give give Stoner Metal UK Stoner Metal a home? I know it's more than just Stoner Metal, but it's one flavor of the pie. Yeah, I think that's a fair comment because it did grow out of the um, well, specifically out of the Manchester Stoner Doom scene. Um, and ha- how it came about, I mean, I'd always wanted to do it. Yeah, um, back in God. 1995, when I left university, I worked very briefly for EMI Records in London. It uh, didn't last long. Um, but I spent the next 25 years after that or so, however long it was, thinking, God, you know, I really wish I'd, I'd sort of stuck with that and maybe, you know, kept going with it. And then mm-hmm. when I st- sort of started 
hanging out in the uh, Manchester Stone of Doom scene in the uh, sort of about 2015, it became really apparent that a lot of bands um, either weren't on a label, yeah, or didn't want to be on a label, but equally didn't have the uh, resources to go and self-release. Uh, and I sat there and thought, well, do you know what? The, with all these bands that I love and go and see regularly at gigs, maybe I could uh, I could release their records. And of course, sat there having no clue on what that would involve, thinking that I knew what it would involve. Um, but, you know, in 2017, I took the plunge with a band called Under, um, yeah, yeah. who uh, I think, if you're being brutally honest, they needed a couple of hundred quid for someone to press some CDs for them. But I said, well, mm. I'm going to start a record label. How about I do it? And from that 200 CDs for under in 2017, it's grown into this 29 band, um, yeah, yeah. all encompassing, taking over your life, even when you've got a real job. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of, fun though, isn't it? it? Yeah. It's long <laughs> since stopped being a hobby, you know? Uh, it's, yeah. Uh, it's beyond even a passion. I mean, I mean, genuinely, it's obsession now. There are days where I think, do you know what? Uh, this is taking up too much of my time. But then I know that if it wasn't there, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's just like you just defer to video games and watching TV. And I can't, like I've got, I've got my second kid on, on the way in, in January. So the only kind of thing I've had to do is just arrange with the missus, okay, this is my to-do list to do with the yeah. podcast. This is everything I need to do. And I'm going to commit Monday nights to this and Tuesday nights to that. And then in these times, everything, you know, we, we just sort of stack it up and over plan it because over planning, it gives you the, um, it gives you the, the bandwidth to do it. And then I don't kick myself if nothing's been done because I'm hanging out with the family or something like that. I think that's yeah. how I balance it. But <laughs> yeah. I imagine yours is a similar principle. It's like, it's going to be there whether you, whether you like it or not. Yeah, I mean, I think I suppose that the difference with me um, is because uh, uh, I'm a little bit older. Yeah, <laughs> mm. um, my kids uh, are grown up. Yeah, they're off uh, out in the world doing their own thing. Um, right. So and uh, so as a result, I have lots of time to myself. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, so I'm yearning for it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, it was. I think that was one of the reasons why it worked out so well doing it when I was in my uh, late forties and rather in my late twenties, because I've now got the time. Um, mm. You know, the kids are out of the way. I've got a few quid. Um, and if I ever I was going to do it, I needed to do it now. Yeah. Because you can just about, yeah, you know, um, I'm still fully functioning, you know, I'm not ancient, but you know, give yeah. it another 10 years. Would you want to be starting at 60 a stoner mm. sludge do metal label you know probably not you know so i think um because i think it's a great story um i want to hear from your mouth the uh you've gone you've left uni in 95 you spent your entire youth um effectively doing the back and forth then what would then have been regarded as like the zine culture basically doing metal blogs before they were blogs and being a basically be immersed in the community for the i imagine the majority of your adult life at that point so and that leads to the job in emi which i believe is was it press yeah it was press in the press office yeah 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 and that wasn't a long tenure and i, I like the story of how 
you left. I was wondering if you could just re- re- recount that story rather briefly. Yeah, well, it's, it's a true story. And uh, uh, so, what I, 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 yeah, immediately after I graduated from university, I went to work at EMI in the press office. And how I got that job was when I was at university, I'd run the university music magazine. So mm-hmm. EMI, amongst other labels, would send records in that we would review and they'd be very grateful. And I got on with the press officer uh, for a few bands. And um, yeah, towards graduation, she said, well, do you want to come and have a traineeship with us? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was it was a proper traineeship, as in initially you didn't do anything apart from be shouted at. Mm. Then they'd finally let you sort of photocopy press releases and put them in envelopes <laughs> to mail to, to journalists. But uh, then yeah. gradually, gradually they started sort of you know, getting me involved in, in PR and press for the bands. But uh, EMI had this subsidiary label, IRS, Signed to IRS was uh, um, Adamant. Um, and uh, Adamant in the mid-90s was a bit of a one. Yeah, he was going through a, a difficult stage in his life. Um, and that combined with his massive ego, yeah, uh, meant that he was very easy to piss off. And he phoned in one day to speak to the, uh, to the uh, head of press at EMI, who was on the phone, uh, and I put, I answered the phone to Adam and I put Adam on hold and then just forgot he was there. I just forgot. Honest mistake. Adam, Adam sat on hold for the best part of 45 minutes and uh, wasn't amused. <laughs> and uh, a colleague of mine told me that um, the head of press was going to be coming in and sacking me that afternoon because Adam had demanded it. <laughs> so um, at lunchtime... Uh, I said to my colleagues, I'm off, for, off to get a sandwich and just didn't go back <laughs> because I knew what was coming later that day. So I suppose just to add to it, I'd moved down from Manchester <clears throat> to London, was staying in a friend's flat in uh, East London. Mm. So when I didn't come back from lunch, what I actually did was went to my mate's flat in London, packed my bags and at mm. five o'clock caught a train back to Manchester. Fair enough. Low risk, low yield. <laughs> the thing that, this, that cracks me up about that is because when I was around that in 95, I was around six or seven. Um, but a few years after that, my mum my and dad would sort of recount, we'd be watching VH1 on Sky or whatever the fuck, and Adam Ant would come on and they were like, he was such a good looking man. He was such a good-looking man, and now, Jim, you wouldn't believe the state of him now, like in that sort of in the nineties era. So, it was really interesting to see like an off-the-cuff experience with Adamant in that period. Yeah, well, you know what was hard for me to adjust to was when you know you talk about being six or seven. When I was ten, twelve, fourteen, which was in the early eighties, Adamant was everywhere, yeah. everywhere. You know, he's massive and. Uh, and I was a fan of Adamant, as you were, if you were that age in mm. the early 80s. So when I finally uh, got, I never actually met him as a person, but I spoke mm. to him on the phone. And you know that cliche of don't meet your heroes? God, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm going to choose my words carefully here, just in case your podcast goes global and I get sued. <laughs> but uh, he wasn't the man that I hoped he would be. Yeah, Sure. So, I wouldn't that. worry about uh, bringing out your dead on this podcast, especially considering I've got about seven hours of Roder X band X Roder and band interviews prior to this <laughs> one. Is a I think it's a defamation safe zone, but no, that that cracks me up. That it's a very rock and roll way to leave EMI. That's for sure. 
<laughs> so what did he do in the 22 years ensuing, unless you don't want to disclose that information as it's a real job and a real thing? No, it's all right. No, I mean, like, you know, in a nutshell, yeah, mm. I came back to Manchester, yeah, and then um, I became, I suppose, a little bit of the cliche of uh, get a job, find a woman, get married, have kids, get mm. promoted, blah, 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 blah. And it, do you know what? It didn't really make me happy. Mm. And in the end, um, I got divorced in about 2008. Yeah. And both my ex-wife and I agree that was the best thing that could have ever happened to either of us. Um, but then after that, I just started to realize that life as it was, wasn't making me happy or taking me where I wanted it. And I came to the, it sounds like a cliche, but I came to the Manchester Stoner Doom scene through having been into bands in the 90s like Caius and Trouble, um, yep. bands like that. And and I knew that there were bands, uh, you know, like Trippy Wicked and the Cosmic Children of the Night, uh, bands like Pissed, who were in Manchester, who not necessarily influenced by that sound, but they were like mine. So I started going to the gigs and yeah, yeah. realised everybody knew each other. So once you'd actually had a bit of a bottle to, you know, go up to the bar and say, hello, I've seen you at a few gigs and get chatting. Suddenly that grows into knowing everyone and that mm. grows into knowing all the bands. And I found this community, community of people in Manchester who became my family, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So the record label became an extension of that. And it's certainly the case that in the first year, the people buying my records were people that I knew from Stoner Doom gigs in Manchester and then further afield. Yeah, yeah. Um, label didn't really start growing into something a bit bigger until 2018. What's been going for a year or so, you know? It's interesting because in trying to, in asking these kind of questions, especially with industry people like yourself, it's it becomes apparent that <clears throat> the commercialization of music is not a natural thing. Like you know, when you're in any kind of capitalist society, in any consumer-based society, you're very much sort of adhering to services or products rendered to consumers that need those things. And that's based around the infrastructure. You need food, you need transport, you need this. You don't need music. <clears throat> Therefore, the costing process for music isn't what it's valued at, but it's what people will pay for it. It's just a different metric, but it, it kind of exists outside of the norm. And that's it, but it's also totally essential because people wouldn't know any bands unless there was some sort of company backing or some a dedicated team of experts who understand that world to throw it out there to the rest of the world. And it's interesting for metal, especially because it always starts with the community. Similarly, when you, when you were talking about when you're immersing yourself in that community, did it feel just natural to offer, to offer your services in that capacity? Yes. And I suppose... <clears throat> taking that even one step further in that in that manchester stoner sludge doom community of 2014 to 2017 was a very distinct period of time mm. um once you were immersed in it um it, yeah, it's like a passion it's like i suppose like some people go to the football on a saturday and they know loads of people in the pub and what have you for us it was all about those gigs and the all dayers and Mm. and what have you and and in essence what happens is you either you're a punter who goes to the gigs yeah. or you're in a band yeah and there was no one in between who yeah. was like well 
there's bands there and people there. Those people want to buy those bands' albums. Those mm. bands don't really know how to get those albums to those people. I've worked for a record label briefly. You know, I've got a bit of mm. business experience. I'll do it. But, and I must, I must emphasize this, um, APF isn't, isn't a, a business in the same way that big labels are like Relapse or Roadrunner or mm. Metal Blade because we don't exist to make money. Mm. I, 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 there are a few of us in APF, there's myself, Martin, my co-owner and Jane, and um, uh, we've all got jobs, yeah? So we've all got a secure income. Music is a proper passion. It really mm. is. And our aim is to get the album that we're releasing financially to get to break even. Yeah. Mm. If we make money, brilliant. The bands get half of it. Yeah. Mm. Cause that's our royalty rate. Um, but we just want to release really killer music that we all love that we think other people will as well yep. and break even and yep. cover our costs. If we make some money, happy days, but that's not the driver. Totally. This is, I, I, the people, this is the same with Brian Slagle with Metal Blade, and it's the same with um, Monty Connor at Roadrunner. There's, there's a business model, and there's a business house, if you will. There's the bricks and mortar of the, the mechanisms. There's the company's house register, and there's an accountant. And the rest of it is a bunch of people who just want to propagate metal and give, them a, give metal a property at the table when it comes to you know, the wider cultural spectrum. Mm. And I find that good. <laughs> which is why it's on such a low yield game as well, because I think people who spend any time in the music industry, any genre realizes quite quickly that there is a lot of money to be made unless you are King Diamond or Metallica or something like that. The actual returns are going to be extremely diminishing. Is, is that a reality issue? Is that, is that a, an expectation you set quite quickly when you approach bands? I, well, I try to, but you know, most most <laughs> bands, most bands, and I, I, I'll include a great many bands on my label. Yeah, mm. believe that they can be big and, you know, make a few quid. Mm. Um, and you know, when when you when you try to temper a band's expectations, you do it in such a way that you, you're not completely blowing their dream out of the water. Sure. Yeah? Yeah, um, because great things do happen. I mean, I, if I can give you an example briefly, there's a band on my label called Barbarian Hermit, yeah, mm -hmm. who are a great band. They're very much a band born out of the Manchester scene, yeah. Um, and uh, APF released their debut album, um, and we put a proper press campaign behind it, and uh, the band did well, and they caught the attention of Bloodstock, and ended up playing on the Sophie Lancaster stage at Blood bloodstock in front of you know several thousand people yeah which is massive which is huge for a band that you know three years earlier were playing in the upstairs of a now defunct pub in bolton yeah you know yeah so these these, these things do happen um but uh, like you said on you know on the money side we we're living in an era where uh, streaming is king yeah yeah uh, the cd is dying um, vinyl sales have picked up, but they're never going to be a replacement for, you know, the glory days of the 90s where record labels could 
sell millions of CDs and then download. Mm -hmm. So anyone who starts up a small independent label with the dream of making money really probably needs to just have a quiet word with themselves because there's not a lot of money to be made unless unless you are inordinately lucky mm -hmm. or you, the band in question can go on the road yep. for a long period of time mm -hmm. without mm -hmm. touring there's just no money yep yep i'm going to go on to that um yeah, cool. it's interesting in terms of setting the expectation that some bands think that can be huge my experience in both live sound and in interviewing um, big bands is that the opposite is also true. Some massive bands think they can be normal people and that's just completely wrong, <laughs> completely Ooh. departed from reality. Yeah. Um, but let, let's go through, let's go through the APF factory. Right. Um, let's, let's, let's try and, and obviously in terms of a conflict of interest, you can, Knock me on the head for these questions because you know it, it, it could it could be somewhat contentious and uh, alluding to contractual arrangements and things like that. So you mentioned uh, as part of your deal um, the royalties of fifty fifty. So that's after all overheads, presumably. Yeah, fifty percent of profits. Yeah, it used to be even more in the band favour. Yeah, when I first started, mm. used to give the band the bulk of the profits, mm -hmm. but. As, as any business grows, as any label grows, it, it creates overhead. Mm -hmm. Horrible to talk business, but, you know, it does. Yeah. And there's certain costs that I have to cover. Um, and um, a 50-50 split on profits um, is, is actually, I think, it's becoming more of an industry standard amongst labels that want to keep their bands. <laughs> yeah, it's actually exactly what Creation did in the 90s, the, um, the Britpop Correct. label, 50-50, exactly. Um, and for the time, that was pretty revolutionary. It was quite a, a sizable chunk for a band, and thus it was very appealing. So if, uh, if I was a band that was, was ready to go into the studio for an album, let's say you picked up a demo and you liked it, what's the production budget? Is it zero, I've got Ableton Live, I can handle it? Or is there a set figure that you invest in a, in a starter rock band for a debut album, which maybe includes a press cycle, maybe it doesn't, I don't know. Is there, a, is there a set formula for a new band, I guess, is the, best, is the better question? Well, you see, APF, because it's young, is what the industry would call a distro label. And what they mean by that is a band comes to you with a mastered album mm. and artwork and goes, release that and promote it, please. <laughs> yeah? yeah? So all the bands that I've signed up until now when they've come to me, have had an album recorded. Right. They, they have paid for it. Yeah? Mm -hmm. um, as APF gets bigger, we will pay more of that kind of thing. So we will put more money into recording, mm -hmm. uh, into artwork. But the reality is, is that if I'd funded all of the recording for all of the albums that I've released, I'd now be on the street. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and an album at my level will sell between 200 and 700 copies yeah that's the truth mm -hmm. that might surprise a lot of people i think people look at a record label and think Fucking hell, they're selling thousands and thousands mm. but in the era of streaming you're not yeah. yeah um and so if you just do the maths 
on 700 albums sold if i'm then then paying you know for an for a band to be in the studio for two weeks at two two and a half thousand quid yeah then putting a 1500 pound pr campaign on it mm. then paying for the videos yeah etc yeah. etc you just you would never recoup yeah you'd never recoup yeah. mm. um i recently for the first time paid for one of my bands to record mix master their album and i paid for artwork and i put a pr campaign behind it okay whilst the album so whilst the album sold very well it'll take another two years for it to break even yeah unless mm-hmm. they're very lucky you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's <clears throat> the dichot the 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 what's the word the dynamics are interesting because anyone can do it now and it's it's almost been um almost attacked kind of like it, when you speak to or when you read interviews with other industries sort of especially veteran industry people who've lived through the analog age into the digital age they kind of go you know anyone with a computer can do it now as if it's a bad thing but you see artists like hell ripper you see like a lot of the big industrial artists um you go out there and smash it, they still turn out a really good product. So there's not really a lot, unless you are as a brand trying to create a, a brand factory and sort of go, all right, well, I've got a producer here and we've got a preferred studio and we've got preferred gear and we've got preferred artists. There's not a lot of reasons to go for that. Really? I don't think. No. Yeah. It seems like you agree with that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, on, on branding, um, well, I think I know that APF is is really hard to describe because we aren't a label that releases lots of albums that look the same or mm. sound the same. Yeah. So in in Stone of Doom, you've got some labels who I respect highly, you know, like Riding Easy, yeah. Mm. But they everything they release looks like California. Right. Yeah? Okay. Every album they ever release looks like California. Riding yeah? easy, yeah. Riding easy. There, there, are, there, are, some other, there are some other labels. Um, um, Cursed Tongue Records, for example, who who have a real look. Yeah. Mm. Um, all their albums have a, 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 a an artwork theme. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and those labels tend to release Stoner Doom. Yeah. And everything that they release is a variation of Stoner Doom. And I totally respect that, yeah? Mm-hmm. Me, no, complete opposite, yeah? Mm. If it's really heavy, yeah, and I like it, yeah, yeah. then chances are I'm going to release it, which is why on APF we have, yes, we have a number of uh, sludge bands, Stoner Doom bands, but we also have Red Eye Revival, who are a thrash band. Yeah. Or we have Video Nasties, who are a uh, black and roll band, or we have Corrupt Moral Alter, who are in essence a grindcore band of sludge animals. Um, if it's really heavy and I like it, I'll, I'll release it. Goes. And there's no theme to the artwork whatsoever. If mm-hmm. you if you were to put all the 30-odd albums that we've released mm-hmm. you know, on a poster, people would think there's just no theme there. And that's the point. Yeah, yeah. Don't want a theme. Yeah. Yeah. Is speaking again about the, the APF factory, so do you have a hand in any of the production at all? Like, is there anything that you wouldn't, for example, accept? Or is it because, like, I guess if people are coming at you with an album already, it's already a product and you already signed off on it by talking to them. Yes. 
um, yeah. yeah, but then I know where you're going. You know, cause for yeah. example, if the band comes on to doing album number two, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I mean, if an al- if a band that is on the label already comes to me with an album and I just don't get it, mm-hmm. yeah, then I won't release it. Mm-hmm. But that has not happened so far. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I suppose that that's because um, the majority of the bands on the label, you have a reasonable expectation of what's coming next from them. Mm-hmm. It, it, it'll be different from the last album, but generally in the same direction. Even yeah. I don't know, even Under, who are the most obtuse band on my label musically, impossible original. Mm-hmm. Um, they often go off at the, the deep end, but you know it's going to be good. Mm-hmm. So there's no risk to me that I'm not going to like it. And that that is the signing criteria. The, the, the signing criteria is I have to like it and I have to get goosebumps when I listen to the riffs. Mm. And if I don't, then I'm not releasing it. And it's game over. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, just on that, I have passed on some bands who have made some very commercial music, which has gone on to sell a lot of copies, mm-hmm. but it just didn't connect with me as mm-hmm. an individual. And, you know, going back to what we were talking about, money, yeah? Yeah. I have passed on things that would have made me a lot of money, mm-hmm. yeah? But I just didn't connect with the music, so I passed. The thing is, if you don't connect with it, you're then liable to not make good decisions behind it. Correct. Because if you don't understand it, you, 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 can't, you can't propagate its existence, really. Yeah. In my case, if, there's, if I'm not passionate about it, I'm not going to push it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of touring, do you guys offer touring support or is that typically a management? It's like a, it's that process is divorced from the label process. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, I don't profess to be a booking agent or a manager to my bands. Some of my bands have management and booking agents, some don't. Mm. Um, the, um, I will, I'm always there to, uh, help my bands. So some, some of, some of, some of my bands, if they're putting a tour together, they'll ask me who I know across yeah, the sure. country venue-wise or booking agents yeah. um but my main source of support is giving them lots of records to sell when mm-hmm. they're playing gigs <laughs> <laughs> how's the pandemic been for you guys then because i've seen a few eps coming out is that is that the the bands themselves going take advantage let's throw andrew um a bone here we've got five songs that we can churn out uh a variation on that i mean um i have put out a number of eps recently um, under ZP, which was out on Friday, uh, training mm-hmm. resource number five, they were meant to be in the studio now recording album number three. And, right. And obviously that can't happen. Um, so uh, they they decided to to do a four track EP, which was in essence one recording split into four parts that they mm-hmm. recorded in their rehearsal room and had professionally mixed and mastered. Mm-hmm. Um, Corrupt Moral Alter, um, we were talking before the pandemic. So that EP isn't as a result of the pandemic. And that EP right. has taken the band a long time, a long time to uh, uh, come to fruition. I mean, I think their last album, you know, it was, crikey, four years 2000, ago? 2007, I believe. Oh, 17, sorry, not seven. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> almost four years ago. Mm. Um, uh, I'm putting something out in January by uh, a duo called Wall who are two guys, Elliot and Ryan Cole, who are in a couple of other bands on my label. And that is very much a lockdown project. Right. 
they they were creatively in need of doing something <laughs> so they bashed out an ep yeah yeah yeah, yeah. how's yeah. the possessor record going that came out what two weeks ago now yeah man that's doing uh that's doing well um you mentioned our press friend mr glacken he's mm-hmm. uh smashed it out of the park on that one yeah um but actually, Possessor is very much a lockdown album. Uh, you know, in the first lockdown back in March, mm-hmm. uh, Nathan the drummer was based on the Isle of Wight. Graham mm-hmm. was in London. And they wrote songs by sending each other bits and bobs through mobile phones, through WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. And gradually, over the uh, sort of March and April, put an album together. And then when uh, restrictions were list- lifted, fairly quickly, they went into a studio in London. From memory, oh, okay. I think it was June or July. And then the album is out. So you know, Down the Light is very much a, a yeah. COVID album. Do you think... Um, I've got a theory that I kind of... In terms of keeping momentum with bands, I kind of want to see, instead of, instead of an album cycle, once every two or three years, I want to see two EPs a year. I feel like the the metabolic rate of my attention span and maybe the wider community's attention span would have benefited from four Black Sabbath EPs over a two or three year period as opposed to them retiring altogether. Do you think that's a you think that's a thing? But there could be a thing. I asked this to Hellripper um, James McCain, uh, McBain, and he said, "No, it's that albums will never die on the basis that it's kind of like a." <clears throat> It's a pro. It's an. It's a piece of art from beginning to end. It's a bookended piece of thing, whereas EPs are more of a moment in time. Kind of. This is where we are in March. This is where we are in in September and so on. But I kind of don't mind that. I don't mind that my my soup having too many flavors in it. Do you have any thoughts yeah. on that? Gosh, what do I make of that? Well, I mean, a few things in no particular order. First of all, and this is not scientific, so you might know better, but I. I think that metal fans of any age tend to buy stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at pop music, for want of a better term, you know, um, it's well known, isn't it, that the majority of pop music, especially aimed at um, 20 to 20, well, 18 to 25 year olds, is mostly streamed rather than bought. So I do, I, do, I think metal, I think metal. Uh, metal bands like to release physical product and people will buy it um the eps are great for bands to get stuff out but they're a bit of a nightmare for record labels you know really is it is it yeah. is that a distribution thing it's all thing? sorts of things press for example press oh, don't yeah. pick up on eps as much as albums yeah so mm. but that's all fine and dandy if as a record label, because don't forget, as a record label, we have to sell an EP for less than an album. Yeah. yeah? And yet the manufacturing cost is the same as an album. Yeah. So, you know, this Corrupt Moral Alter EP, which I'm putting out in a few weeks' time, that CD mm-hmm. has cost me exactly the same as it would if there was 70 minutes of music on it rather yeah. than 20. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the vinyl, which is a 12-inch, and it can't be a 10-inch because HMV won't stock a 10-inch. Mm. And Am- Amazon won't sell a 10-inch, so it has to be a 12-inch. Yeah. That 12-inch EP has cost me exactly the same amount to manufacture as if it was an album. And yet mm. I can only sell it for an EP price. Is there a point where you, as a label, would go, no more EPs, lads? I um, need an album. Yeah, yeah if, we, if we were bigger. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
But um, Corrupt Moral Alter can get away with doing an EP because, you know, they've got a, a pretty big following mm-hmm. and um, it's worth putting a PR campaign behind it because, you know, it'll sell some records and they'll recoup. Yeah. Um, plus, let's not hide from the fact that John Cook from Napalm Death is in Corrupt Moral Alter. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, that's a that's a nice little selling tool, and the band won't mind me saying that. You know, I've had conversations with Tom the drummer, mm-hmm. and he doesn't mind me going on about the fact that Don's also a Napalm Death. Um, yeah. But if they then turned around to me and said, "Oh, we'll probably do another one straight away," I think I'd probably be looking for an album. Sure. Um, but then, CMA, quite unique band on the label in that they don't really need me. Yeah, I was there <laughs> at the right time right i was there at the right time they were friends with video Na- they're friends with video nasties on the label yeah um, yeah right that's, that's that's how cma ended up on on apf well, i was i was gonna i was gonna ask about them because we've spoken about possessor briefly um under have got the the ep out and i think cma are the next thing the, the next apf release right so how did how did they come to because it's interesting you say the, the napalm death comparisons i read a review saying they're like a a more cohesive through line napalm death. And it's interesting. Someone started with napalm death and said, okay, it's a cohesive napalm death. Cause when I heard it, I thought it was cancer bats on meth. So it's like, <laughs> it's starting on more like the sort of hardcore side, but going a little bit more mental. So how yes. did they come to the label now? You say it was through video. Nasty. Yeah, video nasty. Yeah. I was sat earlier this year, minding my own business when, um, Damien, the front man from, Video Nasties messaged me and said, uh, I'm, I'm with the Corrupt Moral Alter lads at the moment. Would you like to release their EP? <laughs> and I replied saying, yes. <laughs> and that was that conversation over. And then a couple of days later, I had a chat with uh, a couple of the lads. And um, uh, yes, CMA uh, have had, they've had record label involvement in the past, other record mm-hmm. labels, yeah. And it's not gone quite how they would have liked. And so they have a bit of a, a healthy uh, disrespect for record. No, no, not disrespect. But, you know, they, they, they're careful about record labels. Uh, yeah. And um, the arrangement we've got su- suits them well, which is that I am the guy who has paid for the manufacturing and is promoting their record. Yeah. yeah? And as long as I do that well, they might give me another one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they, but, you know, beyond that um they wouldn't describe themselves as an apf records band they would describe themselves as a band who are releasing an ep on apf records Mm -hmm. and i totally respect that yeah that's interesting (laughs) you said you mentioned that some bands don't really take kindly to record labels or don't appreciate appreciate the input this is i'm out of my wheelhouse now why is that in general is well the one that's the one that's often thrown around is the word greedy in front of record labels yeah yeah which i think um a lot of that actually goes back to a a time in the past where you know record labels famously made a shit ton of money out of artists Mm -hmm. um i can't comment on whether or not that still goes on in other bigger record labels because i don't really pay them much attention um but i'll often hear a fan say or, or type on Facebook or somewhere. I just buy stuff direct from the band. Mm-hmm. No need to fill the pockets of the record label. 
And I sit there and always laugh because, first of all, just see the size of my record label's overdraft for start. Yeah. <laughs> um, but secondly, I'm the guy who's had it. I've paid for it to be manufactured. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, if you if you buy a record off of me, all you're doing is contributing towards the manufacturing, the promotion of that record. That's it. Yeah. It's not like I'm. It's not like I'm sat here in a mansion driving a nice fast car. You know. It's an antiquated um, viewpoint, and speaking to industry people for the last two months has really helped me empathize with record labels a lot more, a lot more. It typically, even in the olden days, it wasn't always a terrible deal. It's just that the bands weren't party to an arrangement. They were an asset to the arrangement. And when that relationship's established, if they can't pay their account because their record has not sold much, they will just be forgotten about and left on the side or the option won't be picked up or whatever's going to happen. Because at the end of the day, what's the label going to do? Are they going to drop that band of four lads that hasn't sold any records? Or are they going to sack that guy over there who's spinning 10 plays trying to get 10 other bands on the road? It's yeah. as simple as that. All you got to do is peel one onion layer back before you realize there is no fat guy behind a desk smoking a cigar in the record industry. <clears throat> Half of the record industry is people that retired in the 90s because they were sick of it and now going to PR or going to management. That seems to be the the sam- my sample size of my sample size of what 25 people that appears to be it. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, do you know what? I'd love to tell you that I could I could answer that, but I really don't worry too much about what other labels are doing. Sure. Um, I think if you start looking at other labels then then you're taking the yeah of course you could argue that you look at other labels and learn things i totally get that you know mm. if i buy a, a vinyl or a cd off of another label of course i'm going to have a look on there and for tips and what have you but i'm more focused on what we're doing um, and what i was best doing was just focusing on doing what i do well which is release mu- releasing music that i like and martin likes and jane likes mm-hmm. and if everyone else likes it as well that's a bonus Mm. do it in such a way that if they don't like we don't lose a shed load of money i think the relationship between yourself and other labels um and what bands relationships with like the wider sort of label community needs to be as well is it's like what we were saying before it's just a community of people who want to make metal happen and even if you had like competitors in the uk producing similar you know say doom stoner and things like that there's never really an adversity because everyone's mates. It tip, what you typically find is everyone's mates. And the only differentiating factor between the labels is they do things slightly differently. And if that appeals to you, then that appeals to you. There's no really hard, no, no hard feelings with someone who goes, you know what? I prefer a 50, 50 split against a 60, 40 split or vice versa. You know, it's, I think that's, that's definitely something that people don't realize. There aren't a lot of competitors. They're just friends trying to make things happen behind different, company's house registers yeah totally also you know with you make a valid point there there are there are some small bats some small labels who release not hugely dissimilar music to me who are and and we talk all the time yeah so sludge lord records aaron who runs that is a top guy and i talk to him all the time Mm. um trepanation recordings which is run by my mate dan dolby Mm. him and i talk most days yeah um Another get friend of mine, Frenchie, is involved in a record a label called Surviving Sounds, which released the new Hidden Mothers EP. 
mm. you know, <clears throat> we all talk in a little group, in a little messenger group and swap notes and, you know, uh, if we're having That's a so success, cool. well, if we're having a success, we'll congratulate each other. Or if it's, one of us is having a challenge with something like we've released out, it's not sold, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll, we'll talk to each other. Yeah. Um, so that's a nice little community as well, you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. I mean, if anyone wants to, it, it kind of like propagates the view for me that there isn't really such thing as an industry. It is just a community, maybe. Yeah. Especially on this level, you know, especially when it's a Very niche. Much so. a, yeah. Especially when it's like a neat niche genres and things like that. So let's, let's Absolutely. get on to the bands. I think we should get yeah. on to the bands a little bit. So in, I contacted you the other day, basically saying I'm going to make a mixtape like a Spotify playlist to sort of filing, firing through. What I didn't know was there already was one on Bandcamp. There's plenty of like <laughs> sort of showcase-esque sort of compilations of APF records. My main takeaway at the minute is I fucking love Video Nasty. I don't know what it is. I think it is the black and rawness of it. I think there's some movements in there that remind me of my NOLA, NOLA the New Orleans sort of like my sort of anchor point was Stoner. Um there's some bits of that as well in, in CMA, some little little bits are, that are really sounding kind of like like Kingdom of Sorrow and Down and things like that. And then it's quickly dragged away from me because that's just the, that's the way they operate. It's very, very quick to move into the next riff. But um, in terms of... Um, I was gonna. I was gonna say, in terms of like, what's what's your mainstays? I don't think that's a question you can really answer because they're all like your babies, aren't they? Yeah, they are. In that, I personally signed every band on the label. Mm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I've mentioned Martin and Jane, mm. uh, who were also involved in APF. But at the end of the day, I'm the one who signs signs off on it. You know. So it is, you know, asking me who are my favourites would be like asking which of my children I love the most. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, it, it is very difficult. Um, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn if I say that there are some <coughs> who hold a special place in my heart for a certain reason. Sure. So Under, for, Under, for example, were the first band on the label. And if you look at it from their point of view, they entrusted a fan with a tiny bit of record label experience in the mid-90s. Mm. They entrusted me to release their album. And if they hadn't have done that, Another band saw, oh God, Under are letting it release it, you know. Then, you know, without Under, there wouldn't be, um, there wouldn't be, there might might not be, or it might be very different. And on that basis, um, I, you know, I'm extremely, extremely fond of Under. Um, Trippy Wicked and the Cosmic Children of the Night, yeah, yeah, were the first UK Stoner Doom band I discovered. Mm. And without them, I wouldn't have joined the Manchester community of similar like minds. So I have all the time in the world for that band. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned, um, you say mine and Jane, was it? So where do they sit in the process in terms of getting people acquainted with the personnel? Yeah. Well, Martin and Martin and I, Martin, excuse me, <laughs> try that again. Martin and I own the label. Yeah. Right. So um, two of us own the label. Um, and um, uh, Jane, who uh, was until very recently my girlfriend and mm-hmm. now is just my friend, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jane has specific areas of expertise. She's she's got a good eye. She's got good design skills, so she will often get involved in the merch side and t-shirts right. and 
But frankly, she helps me pack albums up as well. And she's been involved in some of the signings. Um, Trevor's Head, I remember, uh, band on my label. Um, uh, I was quite interested in signing them, but Jane really, really thought they were kick-ass as well. Mm. But it's just the three of us, that's it. Yeah, yeah. It's operating out of, you don't have an office or anything, do you? You just operate out of your desks at home. Mate, I have a bungalow. <laughs> uh, but joking aside, yeah, um, uh, I operate out of my bungalow, but Martin has um, an office which has a big storage facility, which is extremely handy because right. that's ah, where okay. all, the, all the stock is stored. Because when you've released 30 odd albums, yeah, you can mm. imagine how many vinyl, CDs, tapes, t shirts there are lying around. They wouldn't mm. all fit in a bungalow. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, it's good though, because in a bungalow, it can, all the metal can compress into a smaller space. <laughs> exactly. That's right. What's the best? What's the best stone and metal um, band name you've you've come across? Because I think Boncom. Oh. oh, it's so good. It's so on the nose. I don't. They're not going anymore, are they? Uh, no, Boncom called it a day. Um, yeah. They went out on a high. They they played Bloodstock in 2019, and that was mm-hmm. a good way to go out. Um, but. Bong Cauldron were one of the first bong bands when it was absolutely fine to be a bong band. But now it's getting a bit out of hand and there are some really <laughs> silly bong bands around. Weed Eater. Uh, uh, well, the best one that I heard recently, and you can Google this so that you know I'm not making it up, is <laughs> bong, bong Bong Beer Wizards, <laughs> who, are a, who are a stoner band. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I won't say much more, but I, I was sent that album considered it for release and I passed on it. Let's just leave it at that, shall we? <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, who else have we got here? Another one I'll realize. How did Possessor come to you, to, to you guys? Because one thing I noticed is a lot of your bands, at least some of the bands such as Spied, occupy the M62 corridor. I know Gandalf the Green is one. Um, there was a Leeds one, but I can't remember which one from Leeds. It's not Hyena Kill. Um, that might have been Bon Cauldron, actually. Yeah, Bon Cauldron and Leeds, yeah. There's a yeah. few in Hull. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, uh, Possessor, right? Possessor didn't come to me. I went to them. Right. This is, again, this is a true story as well. Up until it folded, I used to write for Terrorizer magazine. Oh, uh, okay. Just reviews, not articles or anything. Kez Whelan, the uh, reviews editor, got me involved in that. And I was very grateful to him. And um, Kez sent me um, Possessor's album, The Ripper, to review. Mm -hmm. And it blew my face off. Absolutely blew my face off. Uh, And I gave it a glowing review. Mm -hmm. And um, I was aware that it was on this Wicked Leicester record, which I thought, never heard of this Wicked Leicester. But it turned out to be Graham from Possessor's own label. And in essence... In essence, he had been self-releasing. Mm-hmm. And so um, I blatantly fangirled him. Yeah. I contacted him through Facebook and said, I have reviewed your album for Terrorizer. I think it's brilliant. I fucking love your bandmate. Yeah. Mm. And then we got chatting. And then I just basically, I got to a point where I just said, look, I just really want you on my label. All right. Mm. And um, he caved. <laughs> and so uh, we released Gravelands last year. And then we've done Damn the Light this year. And uh, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, they they ended up on APF because I fangirled them. I re- what I really like about Possessor is the, 
it's the horror aesthetic because I think I'm a big fan of like, I think I'm a really big fan of like this sort of American suburban 80s horror aesthetic. Like you like uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween and things like that. And I think it really speaks to like the trauma aesthetic. Like I love Municipal Ways album covers and things like Heavy Metal Parking, like all that stuff. This is like, like what Possessor and I think Green Lung do it to an extent as well. And even Video Nasty with, with Hanging Tree. Um, they flip it on its head and go, okay, well, this is the Hammer Horror alternative to that kind of look and that kind of vibe. And I think it's so worth exploring. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, whilst, whilst Video Nasties and Possessor are quite unique bands, um, they share, they do, they share a love for horror movies. Mm. Um, also, um, they share a love for the same sort of art. And that helped because it's the same artist who did Possessor's album cover for Damn the Light and Video Nasties Dominion. Right, Alexander Goulet okay. from Canada, who's also done Dope, Dope Thrones albums covers. He's a Dope Throne is another one. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, Dope Throne are awesome. <laughs> Dope Throne are awesome. They came over to, uh, they played in Manchester in 2019 at a gig that I helped promote, and right. I got to, uh, I got to meet them. And uh, yeah, they're they're just a bunch of reprobates who go on the road and get pissed. And but my God, they're good. They're so good live. Just yeah, incredible band, incredible band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder what the, I wonder what some of these bands go into the studio with the intention of doing because some of them like like CMA, it's obvious from that new EP that they're they're trying to capture the live sound and the live insanity with a with a, a particular essence of clarity which, which makes it sort of like really 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 cohesive and really yeah you know, there's that word again cohesive, it's insanity that's trackable some of the bands that the other, on the other end of the scale like a bit more mud in their mix as well i think don't throw in a one of those as well obviously what don't throw is not not your band um, or not an apf band but i'm wondering if is there a particular kind of mix that you go for is there a particular sound you go for or is it just down to do the riffs kick ass and does it make me want a headbang yeah because and you've absolutely nailed it on the head because you you can have um, widescreen sounded like it was recorded in a cathedral production mm. and it be incredible, but you can also have the ultimate lo-fi recording and it be incredible. It mm. depends what mood I'm in, I suppose, as it is with you know with a lot of people. Um, and in fact, it's it's much the same as uh, if you let's say look at Nirvana, mm-hmm. yeah. And I, I was around at the time, you know. Um, Bleach was the ultimate lo-fi recording, brilliant mm-hmm. album. Nevermind was the ultimate Butch Vig commercial recording, yeah. banging. Then they did In Utero, which was completely different. Mm-hmm. Steve Albini job, banging, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Bon Cauldron have done that. You know, Binge, which was my first vinyl release, is a big professional recording. Mm-hmm. But then Tyke, which was the EP they did just before they split up, was the ultimate lo-fi recording. Mm. And they both sound brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also like Black Album versus any Misfits record from previous to 1992, I think, whenever Danzig left. It's like, I'm not messing around, but I can sing louder in a in a pub covered in sweat to a Misfits song more than I can sad but true. I don't know why. It's just got more of a... It's got more of a call to action about it. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with the, with the uh, Corrupt Moral Alter EP, um, I think the reason it sounds so good is because um, Tom Dring, who is their drummer, mm-hmm. owns Vagrant Studios and thus recorded his band's EP. Yeah. yeah and so I think not, they're that, not compressed on time. They're not on a, they're not, they weren't rushing, I guess, as you said earlier. <laughs> they took a while to get, uh, to get through it, but I guess, you know, yeah, the quality okay. speaks for itself. Yeah, it took a long while. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, it took a long time, um, and it turned out well. I think also sonically, it's you know not only is it really well recorded, but Russ Russ Russell, legendary Russ mm-hmm. Russell, uh, mastered it as well. Right. Um, artwork is by uh, the layout of the vinyl is by Larissa from Venom Prison. You know, okay. there's some pretty yeah. heavyweight people involved in it. Yeah, I'm very yeah. lucky to be releasing it. I'm not going to lie, you know. I was <laughs> I was thrilled to bits when they said yes, Mr. Record Label, you can put it out. I was thrilled. Yeah. I'm, I may be speaking to him next week, so that should be fun. Ah. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So what's um in the Manchester Rocks interview? APF APF itself is kind of it's well kind of recorded in in between. I think it's Riffopedia and an interview you do with Manchester Rocks. It kind of covers quite a lot of the ground. Um. But what, what's your biggest fangirl moment in like your career as a metalhead as a whole? Not necessarily with APF. Is it like a band that you met or someone that you met and you were like, "Oh shit, it's so and so." Oh god, well, that happens all the time. Yeah, you know, uh, you'd think as I get older and I deal with bands all the time that I would learn to uh, not fangirl people, but you know, <laughs> I can't help it. And often it's not it's not people who are really famous sometimes it is but sometimes it's just some local band that i absolutely adore yeah uh, and you know people look at me and think why is he worshiping them it's three blokes paying a pub in leeds you know but <laughs> i can't help it you know it i i, I am not a musician I, yeah. i'm a really terrible drummer and i can't write songs and i can't play the guitar and so if i meet someone who can play a guitar or the bass or the drums really well and write amazing songs. Yeah. Yeah. That move me and make my life better. Then, yeah, I turn into a dribbling wreck when they're around. You know? <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> um, with regards, um, yeah. So is there anyone, anyone in particular that, that especially in your EMI days, is there anyone you actually did meet? I'm just curious about those EMI days, especially in the, in such a weirdly potent time when the CD explosion was happening. Yeah, man. I mean, I uh, I <laughs> I met Cliff Richard. No way. That's awesome. Yeah, man. <laughs> that was surreal. I met Cliff Richard. Um, do you remember Eternal Louise Nerding? No. Yeah, Pop yeah, band. yeah. In fact, I, I had to play that song. I had to come up with a um, an acoustic arrangement for my sister's wedding last year. Right. Oh well, um, yeah, whatever, so um, whatever song that was. I hung out with Eternal. I met um, Roxette because they were signed to EMI. <laughs> um, but um, my my God, my frustration there was EMI had they had some really amazing rock bands and metal mm. bands on IRS who no one ever got to hear from yeah. because they just didn't promote them. It's just so they're not making money. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I mean, like EMI Canada was sign a band, yeah, because you know 
Canada loved them. Mm. And then the album would get sent to the UK EMI and they, you know, right, put that out. And the product manager at EMI London would just go, never heard of them, don't know who they are. We'll have a couple of hundred thousand CDs manufactured. Mm-hmm. And I'd be sat there saying, this is a really great album, you should be promoting this. Mm-hmm. Them out, however, and everyone else will love it. And, but of course, I was just the, uh, the young intern yeah, who'd, upset, kind of... who'd upset Adam Ant, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Making tea. Oops, I know. That was, that was your, your day job. Yeah. <laughs> mine, um, <laughs> mine with the other week, I got to speak to Kyle Thomas of um, Trouble, as, as oh, you mentioned. What a, I've met Kyle. Such a dude, isn't he? It's it's because it was part of the Roadrunner project, so I could only really speak about X Order and Floodgate, which is a massively underrated album, by the way. That Floodgate album, um, yeah. But I'm a massive, massive Alabama Thunder Pussy fan. That's my ah. fucking, that's my bag. Yeah, <clears throat> not that X Order isn't, but it's just that was my entry to him, uh, him as a person. So when yeah. I could only speak about X Order and Floodgate, I was like, oh. I really want to talk about that open fire album. I want to spend. Hours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kyle, I love, I love Carl. I, lo- I love it's order, but <clears throat> trouble are one of my favorite bands ever. Mm. And when, uh, when Eric Wagner left trouble, I was gutted. But then when I heard that they'd taken Carl on, I was like thrilled. Cause you know, Carl's ace. Yeah. Yeah. He kicks yeah. ass. And that new X order album does kick tits as well. It does. They've done very well. Haven't they? Yeah, I mean, he was saying it was the one example of when the production went so well that he felt like it captured the live show properly, the live sound. He said the the previous, the first two XR albums, as great as they are and as revered as they are, didn't quite get that vibe. But I kind of think, I kind of like the mystery against a studio versus a live um, experience. I don't mind a slightly watered down studio version of something if I'm going to get a balls to the wall um live experience i mean i guess what's a good example of that i mean i guess your big examples made in it because they tried to capture a live sound but every time you see them live it's completely fucking different it's loads bigger it's loads grander um i guess lamb of god was one example as well these are yeah. all like yeah I, I remember when um i first heard ashes of the wake in 2004 i thought oh this is heavy this is great then i saw him at leeds cockpit in December of 2004, and I was like, this is insanity. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, the history of rock is scattered, is it not, with bands who never caught their live prowess in the studio. You know, look at Thin Lizzy. Mm. Arguably, Thin Lizzy were never as good on record as they were live, apart Mm. from their live album, Live and Dangerous. And, you know, I saw Motorhead many times back in the day. Motorhead were fucking incendiary live, yeah? But uh, at the risk of upsetting Motorhead fans, they never, never captured their sound on on record across mm. their whole career. Mm. So, you know, and <clears throat> it, 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 it continues on, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm just speak to Rob Beaton at some point. Um, and obviously him, him in his capacity as a mastering engineer, I'll be asking about the loudness war. Um, mm. Apparently that's a, a thing where... Now, I've actually heard two two opinions on this. So throughout like the seventy, oh, the eighties and nineties, there was apparently a competing loudness war where everything, whenever someone was given a mix to master, their priority was making it louder rather than making it sound good. So you had the waveform would end up just being a big thick line, 
and you know at a particular loud bit it start clipping regardless of what it is and then yeah. that's where you get these remasters in like the you know 2000s and 2010s of classic albums because they were victims of the loudness war so now it had to get redone but i've got yeah. a second a second thing on this which was james dolby's take on it which was every recording engineer in the 70s 80s and 90s was on cocaine and cocaine <laughs> messes with your top end um, perception. It knocks. It, it's like throwing a low pass filter on your ears. Yeah. So these guys thought yeah. they were mixing a great album. When they put it out and they stopped taking cocaine, they realized that there wasn't any like top end on those albums, which, which is another reason why these remasters happen. So wow. I, I want to get to the bottom of that at some point. <laughs> that that that's very interesting. Yeah, I suppose the the loudness wars ended when Metallica released Saint Anger which was the ultimate clipped, or no, Death Magnetic. Sorry. Death Magnetic, yeah. Yep. <clears throat> which is the ultimate too loud, mastered to an inch of its life album. Apparently, that's how Ted Jensen received the mix. It was like there was there was nothing to do. To, it was received as that, and he wow. couldn't do anything with it. Wow. Um, who was it who came out and... Uh, I can't remember, who, can't remember who announced this, but basically now... Apple came out and said, if you want to release music on our platform, it goes through our mastering systems. So if really? you, so the, the, uh, the iPod or the Apple music version of death magnetic actually sounds good because wow. whatever they've done to it, I don't know if they've got engineers in or it's an algorithmically driven process. It just yeah. works a lot more now for Apple. <laughs> do you know, do you know what I would like if all mastering engineers actually mastered at the same volume? And I'll tell you where this has become an interesting... I've done a couple of compilation CDs, and I did one earlier this year to celebrate three years of the label, which was a double CD, mm-hmm. yeah? And when I compiled all the master WAV to go over to the uh, CD manufacturer, um, basically all the WAVs are a different volume, yeah. yeah? So you can pay someone to go and sort that out for you, but, you know, for the sake of a free two-CD compilation, I don't really want to spend the money, if I'm being brutally honest. Mm-hmm. So I had all these CDs manufactured, and it's a banging compilation. But the only problem is, is all the way through, you're having to turn it up and turn it down, because yeah. each track has been mastered by a different mastering engineer at a different volume. There's a, um, uh, what's it called? I think this guy called Bob Katz, who created a plugin, which is a, a mastering plugin, a meter, it's got like a metered, it's mastering to meters or something like that. And basically there's settings for different genres and each setting according to that genre will keep it at a particular level or a, like, I think rock will be something like minus 12 DB is like your average DB setting and then pop. It's a little bit louder or something like that. And maybe more on the low end. I don't know, but that seems to be like one of the standardized ways of doing it now. But one, one thing I do is there's an online service called fix my levels, which is, um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's which I would not recommend it for music, even though it does profess to do music. Um, but I, it's I think it's just for podcasts. But when I rip the audio from this, I will literally just chuck it, mix it down as a WAV, uh, throw it straight up to fix my levels. And if by chance me and you are on different volumes, it will bring it all into touch. Wow, that's clever. It's pretty good. It doesn't get it all the time, but it it pretty much is there each time. Cool. Yeah. A paid service, cool. but it's worth it. Cool. That'd be handy when you edit all this out out of us rambling away. <laughs> no, no, I keep this shit in, man. This, this, I love this. <laughs> yeah, if you want me to take it, out, I will. But um, I, I, I think this is what it's all about. 
this my this level of detail is like the stuff that I that engages me. Therefore, it cool. makes it onto the podcast. Okay. The only thing I ever edit out is personal stuff at the behest of whoever's there. Yeah, I don't think I've let anything slip yet, have I? No. Hurrah. No. I might edit <laughs> where I live, but I usually, I usually cut off like the first two minutes when we're just sort of warming up. Yeah, yeah, sure. And then when I say, how are you? That's when it fades in. That's, that's how yeah. I tend to do it. But I've got, I've got, Hi, how are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Make it sound like we've just sort of jumped on. Um, <laughs> I've got I've got two more questions. Well, actually, you know what? One of my questions is, what do you want to plug? But I know what that is. <laughs> it's everything on the label. <laughs> well, so. Yeah, there's loads of them. There's loads of them. Uh, I mean, obviously, we are, you know, I think it would be fair, because our friend, Mr. Simon Glacken, or For the Lost PR, who is an extremely lovely man, and who has arranged this little podcast, mm. um, I gave Cy two albums to promote for me, which he's done very well, which was Possessors Down the Light album, which came out at Halloween, mm-hmm. and Corrupt Moral Alters album, which is coming out on the 27th of November. And um, they are both really good albums. Mm. Um, and I'm I not just saying that. that because I'm releasing them. Yeah, I'm not just saying that because I'm releasing them. I actually really, really like them. So yeah. I would encourage people to go and for nothing... Give Possessor a little listen on the old Bandcamp or the old Spotify. Yeah. And see what you make of that. And with Crop Marlotta, similarly, you don't have to go and buy anything. You can listen to them on Spotify. She's uh, You Smell Expensive. Single is on there. Yeah. Um, and then if people do like it, then there's a very sexy looking vinyl of each that people can go and buy and take home and play on the record players. Great. People should just generally take check out the APF record site. It's a good, it's a, it's a good, well put together site. It's straight to the point. Here's your albums. Here's your roster. Here's your merch. Yes, yeah, so what we tried to do on each band page was put clickable links through really obvious stuff to Spotify, Bandcamp, YouTube, but also embed the videos on the band's page on the APF website so people can you know, actually watch videos on the page. Mm. Little bio, clink, li- links through to where they can buy things if they want to. Mm. Um, but yeah it's just it's just a family of 29 bands who i love and it so happens that <laughs> lots of people have liked them as well and that's a massive bonus yeah yeah final question and i'm asking this to everyone everyone across the board have you ever seen a ghost i have not any weird experiences oh man uh no i mean i like i was scared of the dark when i was a kid right yeah. um terrified of the dark when i was a kid mm. um but um no i haven't seen a ghost and i don't believe in them either how's that for <sighs> controversial controversial opinion <laughs> there was there was a time where the only ghost experiences i got reported back were people who would think they'd seen ghost cats and ghost dogs wow and then Kyle Thomas broke that streak because he actually saw a ghost and he told me about that. Did he now? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Bless him. <laughs> yeah. If ever you speak to Kyle again, you know, I think you should, you know, you should have a follow-up interview with Kyle. Yeah. I think this would be important. Yeah. And, and you know, because you don't want to get in trouble, you could say, write Andrew Phil from APF Records and he wants to know when's the new Trouble album coming out because it's taking forever. 
<laughs> I've got them on. Um, I've got them on chat. I might. I might actually. Well, there, there you go. Well, there you go. I'll ask you know, I've got. I. I. I um, I've got Carla on Facebook. But here's a story for you. And this is again a true story. Yeah, I stopped drinking in February of this year, so I've been mm. sober since February. Yeah, mm. and one of the many reasons why I stopped drinking because I used to wake up in the morning having messaged internationally active huge rock musicians <laughs> on and have no recollection. And Kyle was such a person. I once at three o'clock in the morning <laughs> sent him a rambling message telling me telling him how much I loved him and my opinion on him and his bands and what have you. And how I wanted to book his band in Manchester, even though at the time I wasn't a promoter. Mm. Yeah. And then I woke up and you know when you look at your phone and go, Oh God, I didn't <laughs> I did. I did. So so yeah, so you know if you speak to Kyle, yeah, ask yeah. about the new trouble album, but also says Andrew Field says sorry for the three AM message he sent you last year. <laughs> I'll let him know. I'll definitely let him know. Is there anything else you want to cover? I've taken up more time than I I promised to. It's past both our bedtimes, I think. No, do you know what? I really appreciate your time. It was lovely speaking to you and good luck with the Roadrunner project, man. Oh, thanks, dude. I'm sorry this was very much focused on the business and less on like the music, but I kind of like, that's my point of reference. I like to see how this stuff works, how the sausage is made. And I think yeah. um, it should be, hopefully it's valuable to really put a face to the brand and put, no, it's, it's you know, as you said yourself just a minute ago, these are all the bands you like. And I think people yeah. get a sense of the kind of guy you are and the kind of modus operandi you're operating behind. I think it's, it, yeah, I think it, it helps paint a picture and it helps feed the community. So, yeah, I appreciate yeah. your time. And I, Not I would, I'd love to follow us up and say, I'm going to support this by buying a t shirt, but everything is fucking sold out. <laughs> no, I know. I need to get some more t shirts done. I know. I know. Jane has been right in my ribs about the lack of t shirts recently. So, we will sort out some more t shirts. Cool. I'll be jumping straight on it. All right, dude. I'm gonna I'm gonna let you go, and I'm gonna edit this straight away. And then by the time you wake up tomorrow, there'll be an MP4 or a link to an MP4 in your. Good man. It's